0: Let me just tell, give a very brief introduction to uh, our two speakers. Dr. William Lane Craig lives in Atlanta, Georgia. and am adjunct professor at Talbot Theological Seminary. He went to Wheaton College where he got his B.A. He has an M.A. from Trinity Divinity School and two Ph.D.s, one from the University of Birmingham in England and one from the University of Munich in Germany. He's the author of several articles, a book on the cosmological argument, and a book named entitled Reasonable Faith. Professor Paul Draper got his bachelor's degree, his master's degree, and his PhD all at the University of California at Irvine. He is the associate professor of philosophy at Florida International University. His articles have been widely touted and celebrated. In fact, his article on the problem of evil has been called by some eminent philosophers one of the best articles on the problem of evil to be written in the 20th century. Will you please join me in welcoming both of our participants. Now the forum of the debate will go this way. First, the proposer, Dr. Craig, will speak for 20 minutes, and then he will be followed by Dr. Draper. Then Dr. Craig will give a 12-minute rebuttal, followed by Dr. Draper, who will give a 12-minute rebuttal. After that, we will open the floor to questions from the floor, and Cadet Jones and Carlson will Take a microphone around, and you can speak into the microphone uh, and ask your questions, make your brief comments, and so forth. And then there will be a summing up at around 9 o'clock. Now, I know that some cadets may have to leave at 8.30. That's fine. Uh, Just uh, find your way out. But those who want to stay to the very end, you're very welcome to do so. At this point, then, I will... Uh, Ask Dr. Craig to come and make his first presentation. Good evening.
1: I want to begin by just saying what a thrill it is for me personally to be here at West Point. During uh, 13 years of our married life, my wife and I lived abroad, and uh, during that time, you become very patriotic, and uh, particularly in getting to know some of uh, the military that were stationed overseas, and especially during the Desert Storm operation, uh, we came to be just very proud of uh, our U.S. military, and for me to come here to West Point and be able to participate in this debate is a genuine honor and privilege for me. I'm very glad to be here tonight. Now, in tonight's debate, Dr. Draper and I have been asked to assess two competing worldviews: atheism versus theism, in answer to the question, does God exist? Accordingly, I'm going to defend two basic contentions in tonight's debate. Number one, that there are no good reasons to think that atheism is true. And number two, that there are good reasons to think that theism is true. So let's look at that first major contention, that there are no good reasons to think that atheism is true. Dr. Draper, as uh, Lewis mentioned, is well known for his argument that atheism provides the best explanation for the suffering that the world contains. Now, I'm not convinced by his argument, but since it would be inappropriate for me to uh, attack it before it's presented, I'll simply let him explain his argument before offering my critique. So, let's move on and right away to my second basic contention instead that there are good reasons for thinking that theism is true. And tonight I want to present five reasons why I think that theism makes more sense than atheism. Number one then, God makes sense of the origin of the universe. Have you ever asked yourself where the universe came from? Why anything at all exists? Why The universe, space and time, matter and energy exist instead of just nothing. Well, typically atheists have said that the universe is just eternal, and that's all. But surely this is unreasonable. Just think about it for a minute. If the universe never had a beginning, then that means that the number of events in the past history of the universe is infinite. But mathematicians recognize that the idea of an actually infinite number of things leads to self-contradictions. For example, what is infinity minus infinity? Well, mathematically, you get self-contradictory answers. This shows that infinity is just an idea in your mind, not something that exists in reality. David Hilbert, perhaps the greatest mathematician of this century, states... The infinite is nowhere to be found in reality. It neither exists in nature, nor provides a legitimate basis for rational thought. The role that remains for the infinite to play is solely that of an idea. But that entails that since past events are not just ideas, but are real, that the number of past events must be finite. Therefore, the series of past events can't go back forever, Rather, the universe must have begun to exist. This conclusion has been confirmed by remarkable discoveries in astronomy and astrophysics. The astrophysical evidence indicates that the universe began to exist in a cataclysmic explosion called the Big Bang about 15 billion years ago. Physical space and time were created in that event as well as all the matter and energy in the universe. Therefore, as the Cambridge astronomer Fred Hoyle points out, the Big Bang Theory requires the creation of the universe from nothing. This is because if you go back in time, you reach a point at which, in Hoyle's words, the universe was shrunk down to nothing at all. Thus, what the Big Bang Model requires is that the universe began to exist and was created Out of nothing. Now, this tends to be very awkward for the atheist. For as Anthony Kenney of Oxford University urges, a proponent of the Big Bang Theory, at least if he is an atheist, must believe that the universe came from nothing and by nothing. But surely, that doesn't make sense. Out of nothing, nothing comes. So why does the universe exist? Instead of just nothing. There must have been a cause which brought the universe into being. And by the very nature of the case, this cause must be an uncaused, changeless, timeless, and immaterial being which created the universe. It must be uncaused because we've seen that there cannot be an infinite regress of causes. It must be timeless, and therefore changeless, at least without the universe, because it created time. Because it also created space, it must transcend space as well, and therefore be immaterial, not physical. Moreover, I would argue it must also be personal. For how else could a timeless cause give rise to a temporal effect, like the universe, If the cause were just a mechanically operating set of necessary and sufficient conditions, then uh, the cause could never exist without the effect. If the cause is timelessly present, then the effect should be timelessly present as well. The only way for the cause to be timeless, but for the effect to begin at a moment in time, would be if the cause is a personal agent who freely chooses... To create an effect in time without any prior determining conditions. And thus we are brought, not merely to a transcendent cause of the universe, but to its personal creator. Isn't it incredible that the Big Bang Theory thus confirms what the Christian theist has always believed? That in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, I simply put it to you, which do you think makes more sense? That the Christian Theist is right, or that the universe just popped into being, uncaused, out of nothing? I, at least, don't have any trouble assessing these alternatives. Number two, God makes sense of the complex order in the universe. During the last 30 years, scientists have discovered that the existence of intelligent life depends upon a complex and delicate balance of initial conditions simply given in the Big Bang itself. We now know that life-prohibiting universes are vastly more probable than any life-permitting universe like ours. How much more probable? Well, the answer is that the chances that the universe should be life-permitting are so infinitesimal as to be incomprehensible and incalculable. For example, Stephen Hawking has estimated that if the rate of the universe's expansion one second after the Big Bang had been smaller by even one part in a hundred thousand million million, the universe would have recollapsed into a hot fireball. PCW Davies has calculated that the odds against the initial conditions being suitable for later star formation without which planets could not exist, is one followed by a thousand billion billion zeros, at least. John Barrow and Frank Tipler estimate that a change in the strength of gravity or of the weak force by even one part in 10 to the 100th power would have prevented a life-permitting universe. There are around 50 such quantities and constants present in the Big Bang which must be fine-tuned in this way if the universe is to permit life. And it's not just each quantity which must be finely tuned, but the ratios between these quantities must also be finely tuned. So improbability is multiplied by improbability by improbability until our minds are really in incomprehensible numbers. There is no physical reason why these quantities and constants should possess the values they do. The one-time agnostic physicist PCW Davies comments, Through my scientific work, I have come to believe more and more strongly that the physical universe is put together with an ingenuity so astonishing that I cannot accept it merely as a group fact. Similarly, Sir Fred Hoyle remarks, A common-sense interpretation of the facts suggests that a super-intellect has monkeyed with physics. Robert Jastrow, who had a NASA's Goddard Institute for Space Studies, calls this the most powerful evidence for the existence of God ever to come out of science. So once again, the view that Christian theists have always held, that there is a designer of the cosmos, seems to make much more sense than the atheistic view that the universe... When it popped into being uncaused, out of nothing, just happened to be, by chance, fine-tuned to an incomprehensible precision for the existence of intelligent life. Number three, God makes sense of objective moral values in the world. If God does not exist, then objective moral values do not exist. Many theists and atheists alike concur on this point. For example, the late J.L. Mackey, one of the most prominent atheists of our day, uh, admitted, if there are objective values, they make the existence of a god more probable than it would have been without them. Thus, we have a defensible argument from morality to the existence of a god. But in order to avoid God's existence, Mackey therefore denied that objective moral values exist. He wrote, It is easy to explain this moral sense as a natural product of biological and social evolution. Professor Michael Ruse, a philosopher of science at the University of Guelph, agrees. He explains, Morality is a biological adaptation No less than our hands and feet and teeth. Considered as a rationally justifiable set of claims about an objective something, ethics is illusory. I appreciate that when somebody says, Love thy neighbor as thyself, they think they are referring above and beyond themselves. Nevertheless, such reference is truly without foundation. Morality is just an aid to survival and reproduction and any deeper meaning is illusory. Friedrich Nietzsche, the great atheist of the last century, who proclaimed the death of God, understood that the death of God meant the destruction of all meaning and value in life. I think that Friedrich Nietzsche was right. But we've got to be very careful here. The question here is not Must we believe in God in order to live moral lives? I'm not claiming that we must. Nor is the question, can we recognize objective moral values without believing in God? I think that we can. Rather, the question is, if God does not exist, do objective moral values exist? Like Matthew and Ruth, I just don't see any reason to think that in the absence of God, the morality involved by Homo sapiens is objective. After all, if there is no God, then what's so special about human beings? They're just accidental byproducts of nature which have evolved relatively recently on an infinitesimal speck of dust called the planet Earth and which are doomed to perish individually and collectively in a relatively short time. On the atheistic view, some actions, say, uh, betrayal of your comrades, it may not be socially advantageous, and so it's become taboo. But that does absolutely nothing to prove that betraying your comrades is really wrong. On the atheistic view, there's nothing really wrong with your betraying your comrades. Thus, without God, there's no absolute right and wrong which imposes itself on our conscience. But the problem is that objective moral values do exist, and deep down I think we all know it. There is no more reason to deny the existence of objective moral values than the reality of physical objects in the world. Actions like betrayal, cruelty, and child abuse aren't just a socially unacceptable behavior. They're moral abominations. Some things, at least, are really wrong. Similarly, love... Loyalty and self-sacrifice are really good. But if objective values cannot exist without God, and objective values do in fact exist, then it follows logically and inescapably that God exists. Number four, God makes sense of the historical facts concerning the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. The historical person, Jesus of Nazareth, was a remarkable individual. New Testament critics have reached the consensus that the historical Jesus came on the scene with an unprecedented sense of divine authority, the authority to stand and speak in God's place. That's why the Jewish leadership instigated his crucifixion on the charge of blasphemy. He claimed that in himself the kingdom of God had come, and his visible demonstrations of this fact he carried out a ministry of miracle working and exorcisms, But the supreme confirmation of his claim was his resurrection from the dead. If Jesus did rise from the dead, then it would seem that we have a divine miracle on our hands, and thus evidence for the existence of God. Now there are three established facts recognized by the majority of New Testament scholars today which support the resurrection of Jesus. The empty tomb, Jesus' post-mortem appearances, and the origin of the disciples' belief in his resurrection. Let me just say a brief word about each of these. Fact number one. On the Sunday following his crucifixion, Jesus' tomb was found empty by a group of his women followers. According to Jakob Kramer, an Austrian scholar who has specialized in the study of the resurrection, and I quote, by far most scholars hold firmly to the reliability of the biblical statements about the empty tomb. According to D.H. Vandala, it is extremely difficult to object to the empty tomb on historical grounds. Those who deny it do so on the basis of theological or philosophical assumptions. Fact number two, on separate occasions, different individuals and groups of people saw appearances of Jesus alive after his death. According to the prominent German New Testament critic, Georg Lüdemann, it may be taken as historically certain that Peter and the disciples had experiences after Jesus' death in which Jesus appeared to them as the risen Christ. These appearances were witnessed not only by believers, but also by unbelievers, skeptics, and even enemies. Fact number three, the original disciples suddenly came to believe in the resurrection of Jesus, despite having every predisposition to the contrary. Jews had no belief in a dying, much less rising, Messiah, and Jewish beliefs about the afterlife precluded anyone's rising from the dead before the end of the world. Luke Johnson, a New Testament scholar from Emory University, muses, some sort of powerful, transformative experience is required to generate the sort of movement earliest Christianity was. N.C. Wright, an eminent British scholar, concludes, That is why, as a historian, I cannot explain the rise of early Christianity unless Jesus rose again, leaving an empty tomb behind him. Attempts to explain away these three great facts, like the disciples stole the body or Jesus wasn't really dead, have been universally rejected by contemporary scholarship. The simple fact is that there just is no plausible, naturalistic explanation of these facts. And therefore, it seems to me, the Christian is amply justified in believing that Jesus rose from the dead and was who he claimed to be. But that entails that God exists. Finally, number five, God can be immediately known and experienced. This isn't really an argument for God's existence; rather, it's the claim that you can know that God exists wholly apart from arguments, simply by immediately experiencing Him. This was the way that people in the Bible knew God, as Professor John Hick explains. God was known to them as a dynamic will interacting with their own wills, a sheer given reality as inescapably to be reckoned with, as destructive storm and life-giving sunshine. To them, God was not an idea adopted by the mind, but an experiential reality which gave significance to their lives. Now, if this is the case, then there's a danger that arguments for the existence of God could actually distract our attention from God himself. If you're sincerely seeking God, then God will make his existence evident to you. The Bible promises, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. We mustn't so concentrate on the external proofs that we fail to hear the inner voice of God speaking to our own hearts. For those who listen, God becomes an immediate reality in their lives. So, in conclusion then, we've yet to hear any arguments to show that God does not exist, but we have seen five reasons to think that God does exist. And together, these reasons constitute, I believe, a powerful, cumulative case for theism. If Dr. Draper wants us to believe atheism instead, then he's first got to tear down all five of the reasons that I presented in favor of theism, and then in its place erect a case of his own to prove that atheism is true. And unless, and until he does that, I think we can agree that theism is the
2: more plausible worldview. Well, as you can see from my slide, I'm actually, I'm not an atheist, I'm an agnostic, but uh, we'll get back to that later. Good evening, I'm really happy to be here too. Uh, when I was in high school and applying for college, my dad was trying to get me to go to one of the military academies, and uh, I, I didn't go, but I called him the other night, and I said, Dad, I finally made it. Of course, he wasn't that thrilled when he found out the reasons for my being here, because he was a Baptist. uh, I'm proud of the son that I was looking for, but anyway, the main point is I'm I'm definitely happy that I didn't make it here tonight. Okay, Uh, does God exist? I've been seeking an answer to that question since I was 12 years old. I was a practicing theist then, and now I'm a practicing agnostic. I'll say more later about what I mean by being a practicing agnostic. I still believe that there is a considerable amount of evidence for the existence of an all-powerful, all-knowing, and more perfect God who created the universe. Unfortunately, there is also a considerable amount of evidence for naturalism. Naturalism is the view that the physical universe is a closed system, that nothing outside of it affects it. So according to naturalism, there are no supernatural beings, no God, no angels, no unicorns, uh, no supernatural beings at all. So, naturalism and theism cannot both be true. They could both be false, but they they can't both be true. They compete with each other. Uh Uh-oh. Next slide, please. My thing's not working here.
3: Oh, sorry. You weren't actually
2: supposed to see this slide. It was supposed to be flashed as a subliminal method throughout my presentation to kind of get you on my side. But next, next slide. Next slide. Okay, I plan, to, I plan to present seven arguments for naturalism. None of these arguments conclusively proves that naturalism is true, just like none of Craig's arguments conclusively proves that theism is true. But then what sort of arguments are these? An example will help to answer this question. Suppose you're in a room in which there's two jars filled with jelly beans. The jar on the left, the first jar, I'll call that, uh, has mostly red beans in it, but also some blue ones. And the jar on the right has mostly blue beans in it, but also some red ones. Uh, you also learn that that the lid of one of the two jars is glued on with super military strength glue. There's no way you can open that jar. Okay. Now, all of a sudden, the lights go out. A, um, you hear someone open one of the jars, the one that can be opened. You hear, you hear a jelly bean being removed, and then the lights come on, next slide, lights come on and there you see it, uh, it's a, a red jelly bean. Suppose also the person that took the jelly bean out is, is blind, so that they couldn't intentionally pick the red bean, and now you're to say, well, which, which jar did this bean come from? Notice that the fact that the bean is red doesn't conclusively prove that it came from the first jar. It could have come from either jar. But nevertheless, it is evidence. The fact that the bean is red is evidence that it came from the first jar. It's evidence because uh, it's more likely that a bean drawn randomly from the first jar would be red than that a bean drawn randomly from the second jar would be red. Um, Suppose then what happens is that uh, the lights go off again, another bean is drawn, and it's also red. And this continues uh, five more times after that. Next slide, please. And so you now have seven red beans. At this point, at this point, with seven red beans being drawn, and remember also one of the jars is glued shut, so you know all the beans came from the same jar. Now you have a very strong cumulative case uh, for the position that the beans are being drawn from the first jar, uh, for the position that it's the second jar, the one on the right, that's glued shut.
3: Okay?
2: Um, The evidence born against naturalism and theism is likely the evidence provided by drawing these jelly beans. None of it proves either hypothesis conclusively. But certain facts are more to be expected, they're more likely on the assumption that naturalism is true than on the assumption that theism is true. Those facts are evidence favoring naturalism over theism. Other facts, I believe, are more to be expected if theism is true than if naturalism is true. Those facts are evidence favoring theism over naturalism. If we let have next slides, please. If we let the the first job represent naturalism and the second job represent theism, then I'm going to present you now with seven red beans. Okay, seven facts that are more likely to obtain if naturalism is true than if theism is true. Together, these facts provide a strong cumulative case for against theism. Okay, next slide, please. The first red beam is the fact that the moral fruits of theistic belief are meager at best. Any objective observer, if asked whether or not theists are morally superior to non-theists, to atheists and agnostics, will have to admit it's really too close to call. I want to emphasize that I'm not claiming that, that theists are morally inferior to atheists and agnostics. I've heard atheists claim that Christianity, for example, corrupts people. And they point to uh, the Crusades, the Spanish Inquisition, the long history of anti-Semitism and Christianity, uh, to the fact that a lower percentage of Christian Germans opposed Hitler than the Christian secular humanists, and uh, the German secular humanists and, and uh, German leftists who had no religious beliefs. They, they might even throw in a few televangelists, just to make, to make the point. In fact, uh, I, thought, I thought at one point that on this slide I'd have a picture of Jimmy Swagger crying I thought that was a cheap shot, so I decided not to say Again, my point is I'm not claiming that, that, I don't believe that all this evidence shows that theists are worse than non-theists. Um, you can find a lot of evil outside of Christendom as well as inside of Christendom. And the fact that those the German Christians um, opposed Hitler in smaller numbers than did these atheists and agnostics in Germany, that's because I think that Hitler was a bigger threat to to the leftists and to the secular humanists than, than he was to the average uh, German Christian. So I don't think that Christians are worse, or any other sort of theists are worse than agnostics or atheists, but rather it's just that so far as we can tell, they're not more better. Does Professor Craig agree with this? I'm not sure. The quote on the slide suggests he does, but let me read you the whole sentence from which it was taken. Uh, while those of us who are Christian theists undoubtedly finding God a source of moral strength and resolve which enables us to live lives that are better than those we should live without Him. Nevertheless, it would be arrogant and ignorant to claim that those who do not share a belief in God do not often live good moral lives, indeed embarrassingly, lives that sometimes put our own to shame. I like the second half of that sentence better than the first. Um, the first half seems to imply that theists are morally superior to non-theists. But neither church history nor my own personal experience supports this claim. If I'm right that theists are not noticeably morally superior to the rest of us, then the next question is why does this fact a red bean? Why does it support naturalism over theism? Because, on the assumption that theism is true, one has reason to believe that theistic belief would have significant and noticeable moral fruits, that worshipping God would be an abundant source of moral strength. So the absence of such moral fruits is surprising on theism. On naturalism, however, the fact that theistic belief lacks an abundance of moral fruit is not surprising at all. For if naturalism is true, then there is no God. Theism is false. And so believing in such a God would not be expected to make people morally better. Thus, the meager moral fruits of theistic belief is a red bean. It's certainly compatible with theism. It doesn't prove that theism is false. But it's more likely on naturalism than on theism. Just like getting a red bean is more likely to take it from the first jar than from the second jar. So it raises the probability of naturalism relative to theism. Next slide, please. My second red beam is the fact that conscious states of all sorts, and even the very integrity of our personalities, are dependent to a very high degree on physical processes occurring in the brain. Although I do not believe that contemporary neuroscience has proven that brain states and mental states are identical, it has discovered overwhelming evidence for an invariable correlation between the two. In other words, nothing mental happens without something physical happening. Um, this extends even to our deepest sense of, of self and, and to the most entrenched parts of our character and personality. For example, in the advanced stages of Alzheimer's disease, a patient who had been previously a kind, gentle person may become violent and aggressive. This in addition to being totally confused, unable to remember anybody, including close family members. All this is caused by the loss of neurons, as you can see on the left there. I mean, look at the damage between a normal aging brain and an Alzheimer's brain. It's hard to believe the brains from from the same species. Look at the the degeneration in the Alzheimer's brain, the loss of neurons. Also, the presence of neurofibrillary tangles uh, causes the symptoms of Alzheimer's disease. The greater the damage to the brain, the more severe the symptoms, and the more we'll be inclined to believe that the person in question has been destroyed by the disease. All this is extremely strong evidence for the position that consciousness and personality are properties of brains and nervous systems rather than properties of non-physical minds or souls as they're sometimes called. In fact, this evidence is so strong that almost all neuroscientists and philosophers of mind deny that we have such souls. Why is this fact a red bean? Because the existence of souls is exactly... excuse me, because the non-existence of souls is exactly what you would expect if naturalism is true. On naturalism, everything in our universe, including human beings, is the product of physical processes. And hence, the existence of souls attached to bodies, bodies that evolved from non-conscious life, would be extremely surprising on naturalism. Theism, however, entails that at least one mind exists independently of the physical universe, that would be God's mind. Thus, right? theism presupposes a radical metaphysical dualism, mind and, bo- and the mental and the physical. And so theism makes it much more likely than naturalism does that like God's mind, human minds would be non-physical minds. Thus, evidence for the non-existence of such minds, such non-physical minds, is evidence favoring naturalism over theism. Next slide. My third red bean is evolution. I know it's kind of a weird picture for evolution, but I thought it was kind of humorous. Um, Although there's still much to learn there's evolution and then the regression, right? Um, Although there is still much to learn about the mechanisms that drive evolution, the fact that evolution has occurred is undeniable. The evidence is truly overwhelming. By evolution I mean the claim that all complex living things are the more are the more or less gradually modified descendants of relatively simple single cell organisms. Of course, while the truth of evolution may disprove the biblical story of creation, it doesn't prove that there is no God. Um, most of the theists I know believe in evolution. They believe that God created living things through evolutionary mechanisms. Uh, I agree with that completely. I agree that evolution doesn't just theism. But it is a red bean. Um, For If naturalism is true, then the only plausible theory of how complex life could come about is through evolutionary means. All right? So if, if, if naturalism is true, evolution pretty much has to be the case. On theism, however, evol- evolution isn't beforehand a sure bet. God could have created things through evolution, or he could have created each species independently, or he could have created certain basic types, allowing for evolutionary change within those basic types, or he could have created everything by evolution except for maybe one species, like humans or something like that. So there's a lot of different possibilities on, on theism. So while evolution is compatible with theism, it doesn't prove that theism is false, it is no more likely on theism than a variety of other alternatives, alternatives that are ruled out by naturalism. Thus evolution is more to be expected on naturalism than on theism, and so it's more evidence favoring naturalism over theism. Next slide. My fourth red jelly bean is the fact that, if you can figure out what that picture is mean there, then you're ahead of the game. I'm not even going to try and explain it. Uh, My fourth red jelly bean is the fact that pain and pleasure are systematically connected to the biological goal of reproductive success. For example, it's no accident that we find a warm fire on a cold night pleasurable, and lying naked in a a snowbank painful. Not that I've tried that or anything. Um, Maintaining a constant body temperature increases our chances of temporary survival and thereby increases our chances of reproducing. I could give countless other examples, but the connection between pain and pleasure and reproductive success and the systematic nature of that connection is so striking that additional examples are not needed. Instead, I'll now turn to the task of showing that this connection is a red bean It is much more probable on naturalism than it is on theism. On naturalism, one would expect this connection. <coughs> but if naturalism is true, then there are no supernatural beings that care about how much pleasure we feel or how much pain we feel. Thus, on naturalism, one would expect pain and pleasure just to play the same biological role that other parts of organic systems play, like perspiration and shivering, right? Again, promotes survival and reproduction. If theism is true, then a morally perfect God wouldn't produce pleasure and pain without some justifying moral reason for doing so. And the chances that such a reason would coincide with biological goals, well, it's far from certain, right? I would say pretty slim. Thus, on theism, one has reason to expect pain and pleasure to be treated differently than perspiration and shivering. Um, So the systematic connection between pain and pleasure and reproductive success is much more likely on naturalism than on theism, and so again, increases the ratio of the probability of naturalism to the probability of theism. Next slide. My fifth red theme is the fact that our world contains an abundance of tragedy. I remember still six years ago, I remember reading an article in the Miami Herald about a little girl who was, whose mother was taking her to see her grandmother for the first time. A van went uh, out of control, hit the girl's car, killed the mother, and the little girl was paralyzed from the neck down. Months later, the girl was told that her birthday was coming up, and she'd get some toys. And she said she didn't care because she wouldn't be able to play with the toys with her own hands. Um, tragedies like this happen all the time, right? Uh, and, and such an accident like that is tragic, in part because either no good comes from it, or at least, or at least, no good comparable. To the harm that's done by it, at least so far as we can tell. We don't see the good of it. Um, An all-powerful God could have prevented this and countless other tragedies in a thousand different ways, ways that would not rob us of our free will, would not rob us of all opportunities to develop moral character. Um, Of course, it's possible that there's some good reason, perhaps a reason too complicated for human beings to understand, for God to permit tragedies. So tragedies don't conclusively prove that God does not exist. But their existence is clearly much more probable on naturalism, on the view that there are no supernatural beings, than on theism. After all, we know of good reasons to prevent such evils. If we could have stopped that accident, we wouldn't hesitate for a moment to do it. And while there might be reasons that we can't understand why it's a good thing to allow this to happen, there might also be reasons we can't understand, extra reasons that we can't understand why it's a bad thing to let it happen. Right, so clearly the existence of an abundance of tragedies is much more likely on naturalism than it is on theism. Suppose, however, that God has good reasons that we can't understand to permit tragedies. Then he would be like a father who has to take his daughter to the hospital for painful medical treatments. And he can't, the daughter's too young for him to explain why this is necessary. What would a good father do in a situation like that? A good father would stay with the daughter, comfort her, reassure her of his love, Um, and that's the best he can do when he can't explain what the reasons are. But the victims of most tragedies suffer without even feeling an illusion of God's comforting presence. Some people report that they do feel God's comforting presence, but in the vast majority of cases you don't have that. This fact is my sixth red thing. It is, of course, exactly what one would expect on naturalism, for if naturalism is true, then God doesn't exist, and so you wouldn't expect expect victims of of tragedy to feel God's comforting presence. But this fact, notice, is surprising on theism. Once again, the theist must settle for showing that the fact in question is compatible with theism. Once again, the theist will point out that there might be some good reason we don't know about for God to let us suffer alone. The point remains, however, that the frequent lack of God's felt presence when tragedy strikes is much more likely, much more likely on naturalism than it is on theism, and hence the traditional evidence supporting naturalism over theism. Next slide, please. My seventh red beam is the fact that God does not clearly reveal, at least to many theists, which religious path he wants them to follow. Some theists believe that Jesus is God's son. Some theists believe that Jesus was a prophet, but not the greatest prophet. Some theists believe that God didn't reveal anything through Jesus. Surely if there is a God, it must make a difference which of these beliefs about Jesus is true. Yet the evidence fails to make it clear to many, many theists which of these claims about Jesus is true. One can find reasonable theists that have all three of those positions about Jesus that I mentioned. More generally, the fact that God has not clearly revealed his purposes and commands to a great many theists well, that's absolutely stern on the assumption that naturalism is true because naturalism is true, there's no God so there's no clear revelation. But it's somewhat surprising on theism. Again, there might be good reasons we don't know about but it's somewhat surprising on theism. About the seventh red bean has been drawn. <coughs> Together, the seven red beans provide a very strong cumulative case against theism. Why then am I an agnostic and not an atheist? Because I also believe that some blue beans have been drawn. But I'll say more about that later. Thank you.
3: You remember in my
2: first speech
1: I said that I would argue tonight that there are no good reasons to believe that atheism is true, and therefore I need to deal with the seven arguments that Dr. Draper has just presented in favor of uh, atheism. And I guess my reaction to these arguments would be as follows in general, that these facts are not all that unlikely given Christian theism, that these seven facts he's, he's listed are not really that improbable given the fact that Christian theism is true, and therefore, I don't think that they constitute a very powerful case for thinking that Christian theism is false. Now, let's just look at each one of them. First, he says, theists are not morally superior to non-theists. Well, think about that. That's really hardly surprising on a Christian uh, theistic view, because mere belief in God is just an assent to an intellectual proposition. The belief that theism is true isn't going to change anybody's life, I don't think. Uh, In fact, the scripture even says even the demons believe that God exists and they tremble. So, that mere assent to the belief in theism shouldn't be expected to change lives very much. But, secondly, I would also say that what that quotation for me was trying to express was not that I am better than some non believer. What I said in that quotation is that I am better because I'm a Christian than I would have been had I not been a Christian, than I was when I was a non-Christian. And that's simply a fact, because I became a Christian in, during my teenage years, and I remember what I was like. And I've seen this transformation take place in many, many other uh, young men and women either. Uh, also, when they had a personal experience of God through Christ, and the transformation it's wrought in their lives. I think most Christians who have become Christians later in life can say, yes, it was morally transformative for me. What about in general, though? Has has historically the Christian faith been a transformative, positive effect? Well, I think that despite all the crusades, the inquisitions, the uh, uh, abominations that have been done in the name of religion, Christianity has been an enormously positive influence in world history. I turn to Kenneth Scott LaDourette, the uh, Yale historian, and he writes as follows. We have had much to say of the effects of Christianity upon the collective kind of, of mankind as a whole. Here has been the most potent force which mankind has known for the dispelling of illiteracy, for the creation of schools, for the emergence of new types of education, from Christianity have issued impulses for daring intellectual and geographic adventure, the universities were largely Christian creations. Music, architecture, painting, poetry, and philosophy have owed some of their greatest achievements to Christianity. Democracy, as it was known in the 19th and 20th century, was in large part the outgrowth of Christian teaching. The abolition of slavery was chiefly due to Christianity. So were the majors taken to protect the Indians against exploitation by the whites. The most helpful movements for the regulation of war, for the mitigation of sufferings entailed by war for the eventual abolition of war and owed their inception to Christian faith. The nursing profession profession has the same origin. The extension of Western methods of surgery was chiefly due through the Christian missionary enterprise. The elevation of the status of women has owed an incalculable debt to Christianity. No other single force in history has been so potent, he says, in bringing about good in the uh, history of mankind. As one of my professors once said, you know, there are no atheistic leper colonies. Just think about it. Who's founded the hospitals and so forth throughout the world? It's generally been people whose lives have been changed by an encounter with Christ uh, through knowing God. So I just dispute the first point, I guess, that, that the moral impact of Christian theism has not been great in world history. Secondly, he says, consciousness is highly dependent upon the brain. Well, I guess I just don't think that's all, all that surprising on... Christian theism. Not all theists are dualists, after all. Uh, For example, Peter van Inwegen, a a theist at the University of Notre Dame, is not a, a dualist. So I think he would not find it surprising that consciousness is dependent upon the brain. But secondly, even theists who are dualists are dualist interactionists. They would say that the relation between the mind and the brain, or the body, is like the relationship between a musician and a piano. The musician produces his music by means of the piano. And thus, for example, Sir John Eccles, the great Nobel Prize winning neurologist, says that the mind uses the brain as an instrument for thought. And it's not surprising that damage to the brain or injury to the brain would result in a mitigated consciousness. So I guess I just don't think that's all that surprising on theism. What about evolution? Is that surprising on theism? Well, I want to argue quite the contrary that naturalism is improbable on uh, evolution. It is simply not true that the evolution of sentient life is more likely given naturalism than given theism. In other words, I want to say that given naturalism, there's a very low probability of the evolution of sentient beings. Uh, And let me just list two reasons for that. Number one, the known mechanisms, namely uh, random mutation and natural selection, operate too slowly to produce sentient life unaided. This point has been made by Beryl and Tickler in their book, The Anthropic Cosmological Principle. Uh, They list ten steps in the course of human evolution, such as the development of the DNA-based genetic code, the origin of mitochondria in the cells, the origin of photosynthesis, ten steps in the course of human evolution, each of which, each of which is so improbable that before it would have occurred, The Sun would have ceased to be a main-sequence star and would have incinerated the Earth. In fact, they calculate the odds of the human genome, the genetic structure of Homo sapiens being assembled, are around the order of 4 to the negative 360th power to the 110,000th power, simply an incalculable or incomprehensible number. The processes just work too slowly. Secondly, random mutation and natural selection cannot account for the existence of irreducibly complex uh, systems. And this point has been recently well explained by Professor Michael Behe in his book, Darwin's Black Box. Behe is a microbiologist at Lehigh University, and he explains that certain uh, systems in the cell, like the blood clotting mechanisms or cilia, uh, are like tiny microscopic machines which cannot function unless all of the parts are present and functioning properly. And thus it's impossible for these sorts of systems to evolve piecemeal. There is no understanding of how such irreducibly complex systems could have evolved by random mutation and natural selection. With respect to them, naturalism has zero explanatory power. But, according to Professor Behe, there is one familiar explanation which will account for irreducibly complex systems, namely, intelligent design. He says, life on Earth at its most fundamental level, in its most critical components, is the product of intelligent activity. Now, if this is correct, then it means that naturalism, is rendered improbable by the fact of evolution. In other words, evolution is actually an (coughs) argument for the existence of God. So I'm going to move that jelly bean out of the atheistic column and into the theist column and add it to the five I've already given. I also want to present, then, the argument from evolution for theism. Uh, Evolution is far more probable on theism. If naturalism is true, there wouldn't be any sentient beings because they wouldn't have evolved by now. Number four, what about pain and pleasure being related to reproductive success? Again, I guess I don't think that's all that unlikely on theism, given that God wants the biological world to continue and to have an ecological system which will be self-perpetuating. Moreover, I would also argue that the goods that God achieves through pain and tragedies may be far too complex for us to grasp the connection between them. Uh, to give an illustration from science, in chaos theory, it's been shown that certain macroscopic systems are very unstable with respect to the smallest perturbations. For example, a butterfly flapping its <coughs> wings in West Africa can set in motion forces that will issue in a hurricane over the Atlantic Ocean. Now, in the same way, a little child dying prematurely of leukemia could send a ripple effect through history such that God's morally sufficient reason for permitting it, in conspiration with myriad other causes and factors, might not emerge until centuries later, or maybe in another country. Uh, It may well be the case that only in a world involving great uh, moral and natural suffering would the maximal number of people come to know God and his salvation personally, which is God's overall aim. And thus, I think we're simply not in a position to say whether or not the pain and suffering in the world is more uh, probable given naturalism than theism. Now, the same point applies to the, the fifth point about tragedies, that we simply can't say that these sorts of tragedies are improbable given Christian theism. In fact, there are certain Christian doctrines that increase the probability of God and suffering coexisting. Let me just list briefly some of these. Number one, the purpose of life is not happiness as such, but the knowledge of God. The reason we think that suffering and tragedy counts against God is because we think God's purpose, if he exists, is to make us happy in life. But on the Christian view, that's not true. The purpose of life is the knowledge of God, not happiness in this life, necessarily. And that may be only achieved through tragedy and suffering in some cases. Secondly, according to Christian theism, people are in rebellion against God and his purpose. The world is permeated by moral evil, by sin. And therefore, it's hardly surprising that many tragedies uh, should occur in such a world in which sin is in a runaway state. Thirdly, God's purpose spills over into eternal life. According to Christian theism, this life isn't all there is. It's just a cramped and narrow foyer that leads into the great hall of God's eternity. And in eternity, those who have suffered and trusted God with their lives will be comforted with a joy and blessedness such that, looking back, they would say, I would go through it a million, million times over to know this joy and happiness. So that, given the afterlife, that puts these sufferings in this life in a proper perspective. So those are just some of the Christian doctrines that increase the probability of the coexistence of God and tragedies. Six victims often don't feel God's comfort. Well, again, comfort is available to those, I believe, who seek God. Not just to someone who gives intellectual assent to theism in general. But Christians who have suffered terribly can often tell you the tremendous comfort that uh, their faith has been in times of suffering. As for religious paths uh, being different, I would say that God has provided evidence of the uh, of the revelation of Himself in Jesus Christ. Jesus said, "I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me." And He authenticated that claim by His miracles and by His resurrection from the dead. And I believe through those historical evidences, we have good grounds for thinking that the creator, the designer of the universe, has come into history itself and revealed himself to us in the person of Jesus Christ. There we
2: go. Okay, that's my summary of our genes here. Um, let me make a general comment about Professor Craig's responses to my arguments. First of all, he kept saying that he doesn't think my various facts are all that unlikely on theism. Of course, he just pretty much asserts that I mean, I'll let you be the judge of how unlikely, you think, unlikely on theism you think these facts are. But the more important point is that my argument is always essentially comparative. Right? It's always not how unlikely it's on theism, but if, if it's more likely on naturalism than it is on theism, then that's evidence savoring naturalism over over theism. Okay, concerning the uh, my first argument about about whether theism morally dead, or I'm not sure what Professor Craig's position is. I mean, he says that that he thinks that, well, he said that I focused on just theistic belief and I should have focused on people who worship God. But again, my personal experience is that most of the people that believe in God do go to church, they do worship. My personal experience is they're not on average noticeably morally better than other people. Also, you know, he said that, he said, well, you know, I, I, I said it made people better, um, but I didn't say that, they were, that theists were morally superior. But it makes them better, unless they started off as a pretty bad lot to begin with, right? Then if they started off equal to everybody, it makes them better than he's claiming that that theists are more superior to non-theists. And I don't see that. And I see, I I do see, I agree with him that there is some, you can look at some aspects of history um, and find good effects of Christianity. But you can also find some very bad effects. And And you can find good and evil outside of Christianity. I mean, surely we're not going to say that Christian countries, you know, all, all the good that we have in the world is the result of Christianity. There's many other countries in the world that, where the dominant tradition is not Christianity, and they don't seem to be horribly worse than, than uh, Christian countries. Uh, also, he, he asks, he doesn't see why it's unlikely on theism that mental properties are properties of brains and nervous systems. The reason, let me just repeat my reason here. If theism is true, then you start off with some radical metaphysical dualism. You start, off with a, you start off with mental substances. God created the physical universe, so he's not a his mind is not a, his mental properties are not properties of a physical thing. They're properties of a non-physical mind. And so on theism, you've already presupposed a metaphysical dualism, and that commits you to thinking that it's the least likely that human minds are going to be like that as well. Um, is response to evolution uh, and trying to turn it into an argument. I, I do think that what I want to do is separate evolution from the from the argument from design. I don't see any reason to think that evolution can't happen in a naturalistic world. I don't think there's any reason to think that. There's been all kinds of problems that evolution has faced um, as a theory. How could this happen without divine assistance? Well, these problems typically have been solved. Right, there's a problem of altruism. How could you have, how can you explain altruistic behavior? Right? If uh, how would that have a survival advantage that would account for being selective and so account for it becoming predominant in a species? Well, that problem has as Professor Craig knows has been solved. All right? So I don't see that that evolution is somehow unlikely on naturalism. Uh, what about evil? Uh, he says this, a couple of points here. He says first of all, it's, it's possible for all we know that there's some complicated reason why these evils are necessary. It's important to remember that I don't deny that. But all he's shown there is that it's possible that there's some unknown good. It's also possible that there's all sorts of unknown reasons not to allow these things. In addition to the obvious reasons that we all know about not to allow Right? As far as the butterflies you know, flapping and creating the hurricane, you know, I mean that. you know, I I ask you, I mean, if that that little girl is, is... is about to be in this car accident, and you could stop it. I mean, are you going to think, well, oh, what could be the long term complications of this? You know, how likely is it that that's going to create some kind of horrible consequences down the road? More importantly, God's supposed to be all powerful. Right? He's not limited like us by, I mean, sometimes we have to use, I have to give my daughter bad tasting medicine in order to achieve her health. But God can make her healthy without having to go through these causal means. So long-term consequences down the road here are really irrelevant for an all-powerful being. He's not limited by causal laws who can achieve these things without having to go through through these, uh, these undesirable causal means. Finally, he also said that eternal uh, life, that on uh, the Christian view, there's eternal life for at least some people, anyways, and that uh, anybody who experiences that eternal life would say, Oh, this is this is so great that I can already think about the suffering I had to go through before. But that doesn't provide a solution to the problem of evil, right? If I go out to the parking lot after this uh, talk and I smash one of your your cars out there and I smash it to bits, and you go out there and you get really mad and you say, that was a terrible thing for you to do, and I say, okay, I'll compensate you. I'll give you a million dollars. And you might be really happy that I smashed your car, (laughs) because it's not worth a million dollars. You're really happy to get the million dollars. But that doesn't mean that I had a good moral reason for smashing the car in the first place. So saying that we're all going to have a wonderful eternal life, or these Christians are going to have a wonderful eternal life after, is not an explanation of why you allow the suffering in the first place. Um, Also, there's the point about the the, uh, comforting the absence of God's felt comforting presence. <laughs> Professor Craig says that that if we would just seek God, we would be comforted. Now that sounds to me like I mean, this is blaming the person who doesn't feel comforted. They would just seek God. I go to that little girl that's paralyzed from the neck down and say, if You would just seek God and you would feel comforted. I mean, are really do we really want to say that about the victims of tragedies that somehow it's their fault for not feeling God's company and presence? I think that's I I, I can't buy that one. Um, I want to say something listen, how much time do I have left? Um, I want to say something about about I think there are some are good arguments for theism as well. That's why I'm an agnostic rather than an atheist. Um, I think that I sort of summarizes up here. I I think that evidence for a beginning of the universe, there is some scientific evidence for that. And it's just I don't think that the evidence is as powerful as Professor Craig seems to think. As Professor Craig knows, when you get really close to the alleged Big Bang, we don't know what the heck was going on. I mean, really close in time, the alleged Big Bang. Scientists say that laws of nature break down. We don't know what was going on. I mean, how do we know that this expansion is not a part, maybe this expansion is a part of some larger system, right, that we can't even know about. And uh, so maybe the universe has always been around. Also, suppose that the universe did have a beginning. Nevertheless, I still think that that uh, uh, that doesn't prove that, there has, that God had to bring about that beginning. Um, according to Big Bang Theory, if you want to go by that, the universe began with time, there was no time before the Big Bang. By time and space, matter and energy was created in the Big Bang. That means that the universe began 15 billion years ago at the point of the Big Bang, that's when time began in some sense. So if that, if the universe began at the same time time did, then to claim that there's a cause of that universe is to claim that there's this timeless cause. And it's not even clear that that makes sense, to say that there's a cause outside of time. And certainly we don't have any reason to think that anything that if the universe again at the same time as time did, that there has to be a cause for it. Why do we think? If something begins to exist, there has to be a cause for it. Because that's when something begins to exist in time. If there's a time in which something doesn't exist, and then a time in which it comes into existence, oh, we need a cause. But that's not the situation that Big Big Bang Theory is through. and the universe began with time, All right? And so we have no reason, no past experience to suggest that that anything that begins with time. In other words, there's no time in which the universe didn't exist. So when, why does it need a cause? All right? Um, so I can get a little a little blue bean still because there is some scientific evidence for a beginning, and and I think the beginning of the universe is more likely on theism than on naturalism. But it's not as, this big, humongous. You know, killer blue bean that I think Professor Craig um, <laughs> uh, Second, I also think that conscious life, existence of conscious life, because of the fine tuning argument that Professor Craig gives, I think that's a blue bean too. I think conscious life is more likely on theism than on naturalism. Again, I don't think it's as big a blue bean as Professor Craig does. I think it's about an average size blue bean, because um, because uh, for one thing, we don't we don't know that there's not millions and millions and billions and billions of universes, each of which you have a whole variety of initial conditions, cosmic constants and so on, and if that was so, and there was only one that had life in it, that wouldn't be surprising at all. Of course, we don't know that there is all these other universes, all right? so that doesn't totally undermine the force of Professor Craig's argument. It still has some force, but it's just, again, I don't think it's as powerful as he thinks it is. Uh, let me skip religious experience and beauty. Um, some yellow beans uh, as you can see from my picture here if you draw a yellow bean that doesn't support either one I think that miracle reports are like Jesus' resurrection are yellow beans they're just not well substantiated enough to provide much by way of evidence here I mean the empty tomb uh, first of all the only the only reason we have for thinking the tomb was empty is reports of people in the religion who was a religion that was competing with other religions. Uh, Also the fact that, and supposedly the tomb was empty. Well, it wouldn't be the first body that disappeared in history. I remember Jesus was was crucified as a criminal. I wonder how careful they were with with those bodies. Um, And suppose that the tomb was was empty for some other reason. It's not surprising that people would have Jesus sightings, right? That they would think they saw Jesus. I mean, we know where Elvis' body is, and there's a lot of Elvis sightings, right? And we know Elvis' body is Great. So if the tomb really wasn't empty, that would be a, you know, people would start thinking they're seeing Jesus around. Um,
3: uh, absolute moral values, I have one minute. Um,
2: absolute moral values, I believe in absolute or objective moral values like Professor Craig does. It's just that I don't think you need theism to account for that. I, I agree with Richard Swinburne, who's a Christian philosopher at the University of Oxford. Who says that that uh, objective moral values are necessary truths? There's certain there's certain moral truths that are true by definition. I mean, if someone says if someone says if an anthropologist comes back from another country and says, "Oh, in this country it's morally permissible to torture innocent children just for fun," I'd say, "Wait a second. That can't be morally permissible." The word in their language that you're translating is moral moral permissibility. That's a mistranslation. It's a part of the concept of of morality that certain things are morally true. But if it's part of the concept, then you don't need theism to explain. Even if God didn't exist, triangles would still have three sides and it would still be wrong to torture innocent children for fun.
3: Uh, This question
4: is for Dr. Draper. Uh, sir, I'm a cadet, and I'm not a philosopher, and I don't want to tell you what I got in philosophy class. But, I just want, that pertains to your example about um, you giving your daughter bad medicine to get better. Yeah. Well, you could say, you know, my like say, I'm taking a test in uh, my math class. My teacher could just give me the answers, you know, and I wouldn't have to study. I wouldn't have to go through the pain of staying up late studying. And if he gives me the answer, sure, I'm going to get better. And, like, for your daughter, the daughter's going to get better and I'm going to pass my test, but do I learn anything, anything from that? And as humans, we're not perfect, and maybe we're striving to be perfect in God, and if we don't, if we don't learn anything and get better, or pass the test, I mean, that really isn't good, because you know, we're not learning to get better, and that's our overall goal. I'm just wondering what you would say
2: about that. I think your grade should be raised. That's a pretty good question. <laughs> uh, I think that, I mean, two points. First of all, suppose, I mean, suppose that the purpose of your having to write papers for a class, for example, is that uh, you learn something from it. You become a better critical thinker. You become a better writer. Um, uh, well, two, two points now. Uh, first of all, suppose your professor was all-powerful. Then your professor could make you a good writer without having to go through that suffering of writing that darn paper. Uh, your professor could then make you a good critical thinker without having to go through the suffering of, of taking a logic class or something like that. Um, so that doesn't really, that sort of reason doesn't apply too well to an all-powerful thing. The other point is, is there's also, there's a lot of suffering where as a matter of fact, I mean, we don't learn much from it, or if we do learn from it, it's still not worth it. That little girl. I mean, if somebody learned something from that, are you going to say that's worth it? I don't think so.
0: So this is a question about uh, the theology argument. Um, If the concept of infinity is so implausible to describe the age of our universe, why is it so related with uh, describing or explaining an afterlife as being eternal?
1: This is a good question uh, which relates to the difference between the past and the future. Uh, what I'm talking about is the concept of an actualized infinite, where you have a, a set of things that has an actually infinite number of members in it. There's a different concept of infinity, where infinity is not actualized, but it serves merely as the limit toward which something endlessly approaches. This is the concept of infinity that's found in calculus, for example, or limit. Theory, as opposed to set theory where you talk about actual infinites. Now, uh, I'm not denying that potential infinites can exist. For example, this podium interval here is infinitely divisible in the sense that I can go on dividing by one half without n. Infin- uh, 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 it goes toward infinity as a limit. But I never arrive at infinity. I never actually have an infinite number of divisions. At every point that I make the division, There is a finite number of divisions that have been made, even though it goes on endlessly. Similarly, with respect to the future, the future can be infinite in the sense that it will go on potentially forever, but it will always be finite. There will always be a finite amount of time that has transpired, even though time will go on forever. With respect to the past, though, it's different. If the past is infinite, then it's an actual infinite. There have actually existed an infinite number of prior events prior to today so there's an asymmetry between the past and future in that respect
5: my question is directed at you, sir, in reference to the pain and suffering anything life is basically
0: a gift from God and anything God gives is a gift he's going to want you to cherish and not take for granted if life was perfect how could you appreciate the life that God gave you and cherish that life.
2: Well, the question assumes something. The question assumes that there's only two choices. Right? Either we have a world like this with all the suffering in it that we find, right, or we have a world with no suffering, and so a world in which we can't appreciate the gift of life. Those aren't the only. That's a false dichotomy. You, know, you take a logic class, right? Because it's not the only two choices. Um, there's a lot of suffering out there. Again, I'll use that example of the little girl, which is such that suppose that little girl didn't get in that accident, would we be unable to appreciate life or appreciate the uh, the appreciate any goods? Right? We don't. In other words, the point is we don't need so much suffering in order to appreciate goods. There's another point too, and that is. I think human beings are sort of that way. I mean, we we don't appreciate health until we get sick. We don't appreciate goods unless we have evils by way of contrast. But if we are that way, that's a a fact about our psychology that an all-powerful being could change. You can't underestimate the options of an all-powerful being. An all-powerful being could change our psychology so that we could fully appreciate health even though we never got sick. All right, so two responses
5: to that comment as well. My question is also directed to Dr. Draper. Uh, so your third uh, point was that complex living things are the gradually modified descendants of relatively simple living things. And I think everyone in here would agree that the, the human species is a, is a complex organism. Uh, Dr. Craig has provided us with an argument that a intelligent life form outside of a closed system has developed that uh, species. I was wondering if you have any evidence that could indicate that in a complex system, or excuse me, a closed system, such a being would have developed from some, in other words, was there ever a cause that you could point to that simple life forms would have evolved to the point where the majority of the life forms on the planet today are considerably more complex than they were at the beginning of the planet.
2: I don't think that... I, I of course, can't trace the whole evolution and go through all the causes since the first cell life and explain all the genetic mutations and so on and so forth that lead up to human beings. I hope you're not asking me to do that, because I'll admit I cannot do that. Now, of course, there is nevertheless... Quite a bit of evidence that, that human beings did evolve from other species. That, that sort of—if that's your question—I can answer that. I mean, there's, look, there's all sorts of evidence that, that we evolved from from non-human species. For example, have you ever wondered why you have these muscles behind your ear, and some people can wiggle their ears? Well, you know, I mean, I suppose if you think that we are created independently by God, you might say God just gave us these muscles for the purpose of entertaining our children or something like that. But of course if we evolved from species that use these muscles to turn their ears in the direction of sound, then now explain why we have these muscles left over. You ever wonder why I mean the tailbone? All right? that's not just a that's a good well-named bone. I mean that's the bone, the structure is such, that's the bone that, that serves to hold the tail in, in other species. Then seem to have much of a purpose for us other than, you know, getting injured every once in a while. I notice we still got that tailbone there. Well, I mean again, God could have just if God freed us independently from other animals, he could have just given us a tailbone just for, you know, uh, ah, I might later want to add a tail or something like that. But if we're evolved <laughs> if we evolved from we evolved from animals with tails, that explains why we have such a structure. But, but I am not sure if you explain I'll stop here because I'm not even sure that was your question. There's a lot of evidence that we did evolve to other species.
4: For Dr. Craig. Sir, your fifth argument was that if you seek God, you will find him. Sir, wouldn't you agree that if I think hard about something and I want something bad enough, I can create that illusion in my mind? If I want to pass all my classes hard enough and I think that I'm passing them and I convince myself that I passed all my classes regardless when the six-week grades come out, they're not
3: going to reflect that? <laughs>
2: Certainly,
1: it's possible to say that a person's religious experience is delusory or self-induced or something of that sort. Though I think for the person who has had this sort of experience, that probably won't persuade him. I remember when I became a Christian as a junior in high school, some of my friends said, oh, well, that's just an emotional experience. And it was frustrating to me to to tell them, no, no, it's not. It's more than that. My life has changed. Something's really happened to me. Uh, And this can be frustrating for for the religious believer. Maybe you saw the movie Contact. Remember when Joey Foster's character sees this galaxy Vega and she, she sees the beauty of the universe and the words that struck me that she uttered, she says, I never knew, I never knew. And that's sort of what it's like often when people have this experience of coming to know God your personal way through Christ. I never knew, I never suspected that there was this dimension of reality that I could know. And when they share it with their friends or their family, people say, oh, you're just having an emotional experience. And it's as frustrating as it was for her, testifying before those congressional committees and saying, but I know it's real, I, I know I was there, I had it. Now, what I can say about it is this, is that in the absence of any good reasons to doubt my experience, I think that I'm entirely within my rational rights to believe that my experience is veridical, that is, that it is trustworthy. And I haven't seen any good reason, uh, from the beings that Dr. Draper talked about tonight, to doubt that my experience is a genuine experience of God. On the contrary, that's why I only shared that last, after giving a number of objective evidences, that then I shared my subjective experience. And I think that the subjective experience simply confirms or or is icing on cake for a whole series of objective evidences that make theism a very plausible worldview.
4: So my my, uh, question is also for Dr. Craig. So you seem to assert that the uh, existence of uh, objective morality is a premise that you use to justify the existence of God. However, it seems to me that the existence of abject societies throughout history that have totally different versions of morality uh, seem to challenge this assertion. Could you could you again defend yourself? I don't
1: think that the presence of people who uh, misperceive moral values is any more evidence of the subjectivity of moral values than. Uh, say persons who are physically blind or colorblind and fail to perceive certain things correctly is evidence that therefore objects don't actually exist or that there is no difference between red and green. If in National Socialist Germany, for example, it was thought morally good to exterminate people because they were merely, merely because they were Jewish, then that society and culture was wrong. And uh, I don't have any qualms about saying that. And when the Nuremberg War Trial sat in judgment upon Eichmann and others for pursuing the final solution, for killing human beings, uh, and uh, women and children as well, sending in the gas chambers for the, the, the horrible medical experiments that people like Mengele performed on women and children in Auschwitz, uh, the Nuremberg War Trial said, in effect, cultural relativism is not right. There are some things that are morally wrong that are clearly morally wrong even if a society can be so utterly corrupt that it fails to see those things. Now, in fact, I think probably your question exaggerates the amount of moral diversity that there is across cultures. I, I think anthropologists have shown that there is a very common
3: sort of...
2: But you can't harm a dog from its own internal point of view. The dog has preferences that can be satisfied or frustrated. Right? So so at that point you now had now had value. Right? Satisfying those preferences, benefiting sentient beings is good. And frustrating those preferences or harming those sentient beings, those conscious beings, is bad. That's where value comes from. Right? And, and and those values so then then that leads to Right and wrong, right? It's wrong, other things being equal to harm, that's, that's the basic idea, right? And and it's morally permissible, other things being equal and morally obligatory in some cases to benefit other things. So I don't see the, I don't see I don't see how either how God explains it anyways. I mean, notice the usual explanation you get for how God explains the existence of moral values is to say how does how God explains the existence of objective moral values? Well you build objective moral values into God, you say He is the good. Well, that's not much of an explanation, right? Because <laughs> that's just because then you're now you're left with the mystery of well, and how is it that his nature is it has this objective moral value? So you've explained X by positing just another X, right? And that's not much of that's not much of an advantage.
4: Um, so this is for uh, Dr. Craig. Um, you're talking about you use uh, the resurrection of Jesus Christ as uh, one of your. Um, like one of your bases for the existence of God, and uh, if, I was just wondering if God's all loving and all powerful, and uh, like according to the Bible, the only way into heaven is by uh, accepting Him as His person, as your personal Savior. Then how does He allow someone who uh, doesn't believe in Christianity say because they were never exposed to it, or they found their um, satisfying their beliefs through another religion? How does He let someone? Uh, go to hell by not coming to know Jesus Christ he's he's lived a morally good life through his other religion how does he let that person go to hell if he's all powerful and all good
1: well first let's be very clear that on the Christian view people don't go to heaven through living good moral lives Uh, a good moral life should be the fruit of a transformed life from within as Christ has changed you but the the Christian view is not the sort of culturally accepted Western
3: civil religion that your good works outbalance your bad works and God is making a list and checking it twice and He's going to let those who have been not, nice rather than naughty go to heaven. It, it, it's not like that. The
1: whole notion of salvation in Christianity is that it's by grace, that it's bad people who go to heaven. It's people who recognize How morally unworthy they are, that they can do nothing to save themselves and simply trust in God's grace and forgiveness to go to heaven. So the whole view about people being good enough or being morally good in other faiths and so forth is really a red herring because no one can earn their way to heaven. Nobody can be good enough to merit going to heaven. If anybody goes, it can only be by God's grace.
4: Can God display or disobey logical truths? i like to use Dr. Bloom's example, for example... Can you create a stone too heavy for himself to lift?
1: No. I would say God cannot do logically impossible tasks. Okay, then
4: my, my following question is, how is God all-powerful in that?
1: Well, because omnipotence is not defined as the ability to do that which is logically absurd. Uh, I mean, <laughs> in, in, one sense, in one sense, to do a task that is logically impossible is not a task at all. That's just a self-contradictory combination of words, so that it's, uh, it's, it's no inhibition of omnipotence to say that God cannot do what is logically impossible. And that's the way most theists historically have always understood it. Now, of course, on the other hand, if you say, well, God can do the logically impossible, then there's no problem. Then he can make a stone too heavy for him to lift, and then he can lift it. And if you say, "Well, but that's logically contradictory," well, all right, he can do the logically impossible. So, uh, you know, either way,
3: either
1: way, it doesn't seem to be, I think, an inhibition of God's power.
5: This question is directed to Professor Craig.
2: I am a Christian theist and a Christian existentialist, and I believe Jesus is God, and and I entrust him with my life. Um, So excuse the playful nature of this
0: question, but uh, does the resurrection of Jesus Christ necessarily imply that he is God? Could God be playing a cosmic joke on humanity by bringing
5: this man uh, back to life, uh, even if he wasn't God? That's my question.
1: I think that would be malicious on God's part, and given my moral argument for God, my third argument that objective moral values are rooted in God as the locus of all goodness and source of all value, that God would not be malicious, God would be omnibenevolent, and so he wouldn't do such a deceitful thing. Uh, I think the way in which the resurrection serves to establish the divinity of Jesus is that Jesus made certain radical claims about himself like the ability to forgive sins, the ability to overturn the old testament law, the arrogation of his own authority in speaking on matters that belong only to God, and the resurrection serves as a sort of divine vindication or confirmation that those claims, those blasphemous claims for which he was crucified, were in fact justified, and it's in that that indirect way I think that the Resurrection of Jesus from the dead provides uh, a vindication of his divinity.